The Honorable Chief Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the Supreme Court of North Carolina is now sitting for the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good morning. Our next case is Keith versus Health Pro Home Care Services. We will hear from the appellant. You please the court. I'm Jeremy Wilson with the Warden Smith Law Firm. I'm here with my law partner, Chris Edwards. I'd like to reserve seven minutes for rebuttal, please. And Chris Edwards will be handling the rebuttal argument. We believe the Court of Appeals erred by restricting this case to a limited negligent hiring analysis as defined in the Little v. Omega Meets opinion. Under that analysis, there could never be liability on the part of Health Pro. The Keats case, by definition, would have required a defense verdict. We do not believe that is the law in North Carolina. The Court of Appeals misapplied and misinterpreted your precedent. Health Pro placed an aide who had lied on her job application about her criminal background into the home of an elderly and disabled couple. Significant amounts of, miss of money began missing, well over $1,000, and Health Pro admitted that it believed that Ms. Clark was responsible. It promised to remove her from the home and that she would never be back again. Instead, she was placed back just a few weeks later when Health Pro needed Ms. Clark in order to be able to build the case. Then just a few weeks after that, a foreseeable harm, a robbery, resulted. North Carolina law allows the Keats to get to the jury on this factual record. Reasonable minds can differ as to how they would decide this case if they were a juror. But the Court of Appeals majority was not the jury. They simply were to decide if there was enough evidence to get to the jury by taking the evidence and the light most favorable to the Keats, something the Court of Appeals majority demonstrably did not do. This is a case that must be decided on its own set of facts. Contrary to Health Pro and its amici's arguments, we're not asking for any change in North Carolina law, any expansion of employer liability. We agree that the little requirements that they apply in most cases, but they do not apply here. These were elderly, disabled, long-term home health care clients. They weren't strangers, they weren't members of the public at large. And Health Pro made specific promises to the Keiths. It promised when they were on notice of several thefts in the Keiths' home, that Health Pro would investigate everything. And the most important promise Health Pro made was when it admitted that it believed that Clark was the primary suspect for these thefts, it promised to never put her back in the home again. But it did so anyway. Health Pro owed a duty, it created a specific duty to known clients, and the Keiths were entitled to pursue their negligence claim as a result. Let, let, let me ask you this. Uh, I want to be sure I heard one of your initial statements that if this claim were limited to negligent hiring, retention, firing type claim, that the plaintiffs here would not have had uh, success on such a claim is did i hear that right and in your honor what i was referring to was the negligent hiring as defined by little we present this case as an ordinary negligence claim because we believe that there's there's more involved as a than a typical negligent hiring claim but the way that little defines negligent hiring is focused on duties to members of the general public and that's different than what we have here so our position is in making those requirements, in applying those requirements for there to be a duty, 
including that the employee and the plaintiff were in places where each had a right to be when the wrongful act occurred, and that the employer was reasonably expecting to receive a benefit at that specific time. By requiring those duty elements outlined in little that are only for matters involving the general public, then with that analysis, there could never be a verdict or, or never be a claim, frankly, for the Keiths. So, uh, I'm, uh, I'm a bit confused because it seems to me that one of the claims here is that uh, the uh, defendants uh, did not uh, comply with their own internal policy by not doing uh, adequate background check that included um, uh, a criminal history. And if they had, uh, they would have found that uh, the employee, uh, Ms. Clark, was uh, incapable of fulfilling the job responsibilities because she didn't have a active driver's license uh, at a minimum. Uh, arguably, there were other um, charges that could have raised some cautionary flags. Uh, what, what am I missing about how that wouldn't have been a negligent hiring claim? Yes, Your Honor, we would agree that it might have been appropriate to consider some of the negligent hiring case law to to determine whether or not there was anything about this case that would prevent it from going forward. Certainly some of the facts have to do with how Ms. Clark was hired. But this case is about more than that, including once she was suspected of stealing and there being a promise not to put her back in the home, her being assigned back to the home. And, and Your Honor, at that point, we believe that those primary errors or, or those initial errors become even more important. At that point, when HealthPro decided to put her back in the home, despite admitting that they believed that she was the thief, did they look back and consider what they knew or should have known? Did they look back and consider that she had lied on her job application, that she had not told the truth about having a driver's license, that she had been driving the Keiths without a driver's license, that she was the person they believed was responsible for a series of thefts, at least three of them, that she might have had a motivation to steal based on money concerns, and that there were perhaps concerning social media posts. So it's really at that point, Your Honor, that some of those initial concerns or it's information that HealthPro knew or should have known with this decision to put her back into the home. Certainly that's part of the story here, Your Honor, but this case is about more than that. It's about the affirmative conduct on the part of HealthPro, including specific representations to known clients that we believe means that there are facts in the record that take it beyond a traditional negligent hiring case. Why isn't that a negligent retention claim? Uh, they know, or at least they, uh, well, based on what they know, um, they should do an investigation of the allegations of the theft. Uh, and uh, despite, uh, or it appears that that might not have been done, um, why, why wouldn't that fall under uh, a, and, and again, I'm taking into account the, um, how they hold them out, themselves out to the public with regard to what their business entity is and uh, what is a part of that. Uh, it, it again seems to me that that could be couched as a negligent retention claim. Yes, Your Honor, and, and you certainly could try to put many of these contentions of negligence 
you could try to present them that way. And, and I certainly understand the question. I think what distinguishes the traditional ne traditional negligent hiring cases from this case is that they typically involve putting an employee out there to interact with with new customers, members of the public, people who potentially could be strangers, and then being inherently unfit and, and being negligent in some way. There's more here because the company itself had spe made specific representations itself to the Keats that engaged in affirmative conduct by assigning her to the home, by promising to do an investigation, by, by saying that she would never be back and putting her back there anyway. And I certainly understand there might be a way to couch that or to describe that as, as does that have more to do about retaining her or, or an investigation that might have been part of retaining her. We believe there's more involved here because the traditional negligent hiring case law does not always encompass this affirmative conduct on behalf of a company. This court said for a long time that any affirmative action we take, the duty of reasonable care applies. And here you had direct interactions and conduct between the company and between the Keiths. So it, it seems to me that uh, you're claiming or your claim, the claim is uh, that uh, the company uh, made these representations. But to me, the question again has to be asked, the, the, the company itself fulfilled those representations through hiring, retention, firing the individual employees that have the interaction uh, with the individuals. Um, how would you uh, limit uh, potential liability of companies if it were not that, that again, act solely through uh, or primarily, I don't know if the owners actually go out and do any care, but primarily at, mo at, at least uh, through these employees, uh, how, how does this whole concept of uh, providing safe uh, care that was uh, uh, promised uh, through these employees, through the assignment of these uh, employees, how does that not encompass the whole claim here? And if it doesn't, where, how do you draw? How do you draw a line for an employer who's seeking to, you know, provide similar services, um, uh, making the representation that its employees will provide those services? And then comes up short. Yes, your honor, I, I guess a few points, you know, companies have to act through agents. So they're almost always acting through employees or, or some other individuals. And so that becomes a bit of a slippery slope where at any point a company uses its own affirmative representations or promises that it made, but that has to become a negligent hiring claim. But, but to directly answer your question, Chief Justice Newby, the here, we do think that even if you looked at this case under a little analysis, that there could still be liability because the concerns that were present in little are not applicable here. And the little court of appeals opinion that was affirmed per curiam by this court says that. Regarding those duty elements that I cited previously, it says that those are, quote, three common factors underlying most cases. Most cases. And that courts and other jurisdictions have generally, though not exclusively, declined to hold employers liable when any of those three factors was not proven. 
generally, though not exclusively. And interestingly, the pattern jury instruction based on negligent hiring says that each of those duty elements, quote, must be proven, which is inconsistent with little, which recognizes that those duty elements are generally there, particularly in cases involving the public at large. And, and what really little was really concerned about was whether or not there was some sort of nexus or connection between the employment relationship and the alleged injury. And again, we believe little is very much distinguishable and inapplicable here. But if this court were to analyze this case under little, we believe that would be an appropriate test, Your Honor, that would limit liability. Was there some sort of nexus or connection between the employment relationship between the company and the employee and the injury that resulted? And here you you absolutely have that. And, and I'll first note that the little opinion says exactly what I'm saying. It says, quote, we refuse to make employers insurers to the public at large for intentional torts that bear no relationship to the employment. And it says what is required, however, is a nexus between the employment relationship and the injury. And you have that relationship here. So if you were to apply that test in order to try to draw a line somewhere, it would be met here. Here, the employment relationship between HealthPro, Clark, and the Keiths had everything to do with what happened. Clark only met the Keiths because of HealthPro. Clark gained information and intel about the Keiths because she was placed in the home by HealthPro. HealthPro gained a benefit. It gained $20 every hour that Clark was in the home. And Clark was only allowed to return to the home because HealthPro, despite admitting that it believed that she was responsible for those thefts, placed her back in the home despite promising not to do so, allowing her to gain additional important intel over those few weeks for the ultimate robbery. A few, a few more points about the question of ordinary negligence versus negligent hiring. We do believe it's described in the dissent that negligent hiring is simply a species of ordinary negligence. It's a way to prove ordinary negligence. This is different than other types of negligence, such as gross negligence, that have a different standard. For gross negligence, you need purposeful or deliberate conduct. Ordinary negligence, there certainly are different varieties or theories by which you prove it. You see that in premises liability cases. You see that in inadequate security cases. Certainly, our case law puts guardrails on types of ordinary negligence claims. Like with premises liability, when the question is, what information need to be there for there to be a duty to warn of a certain hidden or concealed danger, and, and how, was it, how, did it, how did it come to be? Or inadequate, in inadequate security cases where there typically is not a duty to protect a visitor from criminal acts of third parties, but there can be if there's prior notice of crimes that make another crime foreseeable. So these are still ordinary negligence claims. And putting guardrails on types of ordinary negligence claims, that's exactly what Little did with regard to protecting strangers or members of the public at large. A situation that's very distinguishable from from what we have here. And with regard to little being distinguishable, the court of appeals majority cites a little and and, um, and the other side relies on a little. That case cannot be more distinguishable. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Wilson. Um, you mentioned guardrails specific to this case as opposed to the ones in Little. Could you suggest some of those guardrails, some of those uh, limitations or specific directions that a jury would need to have to uh, be able to uh, answer these questions appropriately? Thank you. Yes, Your Honor, absolutely. I, I think 
the point is with little that those guard guardrails were in place to prevent companies from becoming insurers to the public at large to essentially be strictly liable uh, strictly liable for anything that their employees did and those duty elements that the little court looked at about whether or not the the employee was in a place where they had a right to be whether or not that encounter happened because of the employment itself whether or not the company was was to receive some benefit those are the guardrails that make sense when we're trying to present prevents companies employers from becoming insurers to the public at large and it never ending but those those concerns just aren't present here these were long-term home health care clients very much known by the company Clark was only assigned to the home because of health pro health pro made specific representations to which the duty of reasonable care attaches including the most important promise at the end that they would never put her back in the home when they believed that she was responsible for those prior thefts but did so anyway and and those guardrails a little they were appropriate but that situation could not be more different that contractor had no relationship whatsoever with its victims and, and i do understand little my question specifically and I, i'm sorry i wasn't very artful with it is um what guardrails would you suggest in this situation uh that would help a jury uh appropriately decide this case and, and i'm sorry your honor your question was very clear i just didn't do a very good job answering it in this case we think what attaches is the duty of reasonable care in any action that we take so once there's a specific promise to investigate everything a promise to never put her back in the home the company made those representations and then there's admitted knowledge that they believe that Clark was responsible for those thefts and took the affirmative act of placing her back in there anyway. At that point, the duty of reasonable care applies just as it applies to all of our actions in the court or the jury um, in its exercise of common sense and experience can consider whether or not that was a breach of the duty of reasonable care and, and what that duty meant. But but I do think, Your Honor, if if you were to consider this under a little analysis, then you could consider again whether or not there's some sort of nexus between the employment relationship and the injury complained of. And here there certainly is, unlike little, which which you referenced, where there's no relationship. Here again, Clark being in the home and being placed back in the home had everything to do with that employment relationship with Health Pro and Health Pro specific actions related to that employment relationship. So that nexus between the employment relationship and the injury. That little references when it talks about those duty elements generally applying, but not always applying, that would be an appropriate guardrail under a, a little analysis. Again, we believe that case is totally distinguishable, but if, if you were to look at some of those concerns, that might be an appropriate place for this court to look. And, and a few words about proximate cause as well in, in the time that I have rem re remaining. The Court of Appeals majority also held that even if there was a duty, there was insufficient evidence of proximate cause because the Keith's injuries were not foreseeable. That conclusion was an error. First, this court has held on multiple occasions that proximate cause is almost always a decision for the jury. It's a decision to be made by the trier of fact. There can be more than one proximate cause of an injury. And further, the specific type of harm need not be foreseeable so long as consequences of a generally injurious nature are in fact foreseeable. This court has stated that the test of foreseeability does not require that defendant should have been able to foresee the injury in the precise form in which it actually occurred. 
taken in the light most favorable to the Keiths, there was more than enough evidence that the jury could infer that that breach, including placing Clark back in the home when it believed that she was the thief and promising not to do so, was a proximate cause of the injury. Clark had lied on her job application. She had stolen before. There were, there, was, there were motivations for money with that child support that was owed. She had been driving the Keiths without a, without a license. There were concerning Facebook posts. And taking each piece of evidence by itself and looking at it by itself it might not sway um, someone individually, but considering all that evidence together, including that she was the prime suspect for stealing over $1,000, we think very much makes it foreseeable that if she was placed back in the home and was told, we're not looking at you, you have the green light to continue your conduct, that her stealing and theft would take the next step, and that something like this, some sort of consequence of a general, generally injurious nature, was foreseeable. This also was the same zone of risk. This was another robbery. She had stolen over $1,000 before. And on the proximate cause piece, we believe it was very important for her to be in the home for those few weeks. She gained additional information. She did not know everything she needed to know beforehand. The Keiths had adult children. One of those adult daughters was local and would stay the night with the Keiths. It was important for Clark to know their schedule and to know that the adult daughter would not be staying there that night. She knew the aide's schedules. In fact, the aide that left that night, her accomplices tried to blame the, this robbery on that aide. They said, and this is in, this re in the record, they said to the Keiths, Erica let us in. And so she knew who to try to blame this on. She knew the valuables had not been moved, that the gun had not been moved. She knew where to tell her accomplices to go. That information that she gained by being back in the home was important as well to allow this robbery to be orchestrated and to happen. So taken in the light most favorable to the Keiths, we believe there was more than enough evidence for the jury to decide proximate cause, which is almost always the role of the jury. A few words on the jury instructions. The Court of Appeals aired, we believe, when it, when it concluded that the trial court's jury instructions contained harmful air. The, the Court of Appeals decided and, and Health Pro asked for negligent, the negligent hiring pattern jury instruction which said that the Keats, quote, must prove those duty elements in Little, even though Little does not say that, the pattern and jury instruction said that they, quote, must prove those elements, including that Clark was in a place where that she had a right to be that night and that Health Pro was to gain a benefit from that specific interaction. Again, that's based on a misapplication of Little, a, a case that was based on trying to protect employers from becoming insurers to the public at large. That was not proper here, and that was the only instruction that Health Pro asked for. It did not ask for a special jury instruction, alternative jury instructions. It was inviting error, and if that instruction had been given, it would have confused the jury. And by misapplying and misstating those requirements being necessary, if that was a true statement of the law, then as a matter of law, the Keith should never have had a case, and should, the case should have been dismissed earlier. And we just can't believe that based on these facts that that the Keiths would never have a claim under North Carolina law. Also, I'll just briefly mention that, that the health pro cannot show that the jury was actually misled. There was not a single piece of evidence that it was not able to present or an argument that it couldn't make. And so members of the court, for these reasons, we ask that you reverse the Court of Appeals and uphold the trial court's judgment. And I'll reserve the remainder of our time for rebuttal by Mr. Edwards. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. 
Thank you, Chief Justice Newby, and good morning or good afternoon. My name is Mike Rothrock, and may it please the court, I represent the uh, defendants, Health Pro. Um, the plaintiffs in this case seek to hold Health Pro liable for the deliberate off-duty criminal actions of their employee, Clark, surrounding a break-in in plaintiff's home. The plaintiffs argue their claim is one for ordinary negligence, and in doing so, they ignore well-established... I'm sorry, can everybody hear me? Everybody's windows are starting to blink out. Uh, yes, counsel. I, th I think we can. I'm seeing nobody's windows blinking on our end. Okay, fine. It just must be on my end. I'm, thank you, uh, Your Honor. Uh, in doing so, they ignore well-established precedent and attempt to impermissibly and dramatically expand the circumstances under which an employer can be held liable for its employees' conduct. The plaintiff's allegations and the evidence advanced at trial in this case concern health pros' actions in hiring, supervising, and retaining Dietra Clark. The applicable law and evidence makes clear the trial court erroneously instructed the jury and that this error was prejudicial to Health Pro. The plaintiffs in this matter did not assert alternative theories of negligence. They presented only one. This court has stated that the relief to which a plaintiff is entitled is not determined by the evidence is determined by the evidence and not the conclusions of the pleader or the prayer for relief. And while plaintiffs have titled that theory negligence, their allegations arguments and evidence all centered on Health Pro's hiring of Clark, their supervision of Clark, and the retention of Clark as an employee. When you look at the complaint, which is in the record, all of the contentions of negligence read within the context of the evidence can be stated simply that Health Pro failed to properly screen as prospective employees during the hiring process, that they failed to hire prospective employees for the appropriate position within the company, that they failed to properly supervise this employee, and that they inappropriately retained this employee after the employee was purportedly suspected in an alleged theft. At trial, the entirety of plaintiff's evidence centered on the alleged negligence of Health Pro in hiring Clark due to her criminal background and content of her job application, failing to properly investigate the background of Clark during the hiring process and during the course of her employment, year, almost year-long employment, and failing to properly supervise Clark, including her driving Mrs. Keith without a license and her alleged but unconfirmed involvement in a theft in plaintiff's home, and also retaining Clark as a personal care aide in plaintiff's home after a period of removal in August of 2016. The plaintiffs contend that a special relationship brings this case outside of the negligent hiring context. However, the promises made by HealthPro in regard to the aides and to the Keith involve screening prospective employees during that hiring process and the supervision and retention of a specific employee during their investigation into the missing money in the plaintiff's home. So the plaintiffs further contend that the other- Council, let me ask you this. Um, if we agree, if the court agrees that this is truly a negligent hiring supervision retention case, um, and that instruction was requested to the trial court and the trial court denied it, uh, why would the proper remedy not be to simply set aside the jury verdict and a remand for a new trial with proper jury instructions. So thank you for that question, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, it, the, it would not be the proper remedy because regardless of the claim presented, there's still not enough evidence to that the plaintiff presented to meet all the requisite of either an ordinary negligence claim or a negligent hiring retention claim. So in, in any in any analysis of what kind of tort this is, 
the evidence presented at trial and and shown to the jury was not sufficient to carry the issue of liability to the jury to begin with. And our directed verdict motion or judgment, notwithstanding the verdict motion should have been granted as the court of appeals correctly decided. Um, the reason for that is the material undisputed facts do not support submission of this case to a jury for determination because the evidence does not show that the defendant knew or reasonably could have known that uh, Clark posed a danger to the plaintiffs. And Clark's actions were a deliberate, unforeseeable criminal act that in no way advanced her employment with Health Pro. And I think Little speaks to this issue where the court refused to make employers insurers to the public at large by imposing a legal duty on employers for victims of their employees' intentional torts that bear no relationship to the employment. While Clark may have had knowledge of the plaintiff's home in this case, Clark was not on duty at the time of the incident, never entered the plaintiff's home that night. Mr. Rothrock, let me ask you a couple of things about the, the little standard, just so that I'll understand what it what its implications are for your argument. I mean, Little says it talks about these three criteria that you or three factors that you look at in determining whether a duty exists. What does it mean that the employee and the plaintiff must be in places where each had a right to be when the wrongful act incurred? What, what's the what's that intended to get at in your view? I think that uh, thank you for that question, Justice Irvin. I, I think what the that phrase means in the case is, is exactly what it says, is that they both have a right to be where they're supposed to be. Like, for example, um, you know, it, using the, for example, if Clark had let these individuals into the plaintiff's home to burglarize them while she was on her shift, she's in a place she has a right to be at the time. She, she's on, she's during her course of employment, she's on her shift, or if she herself had burglarized them on her shift, she has a right to be in the plaintiff's home at that time because she is there in service of health pro. That so is not the evidence in this case, however. These were two individuals. That... Your, your, your view is that an employee who is quote unquote off the clock can never be uh, responsible for a negligent, uh, successful negligent retention claim? I don't believe that, Your Honor, but I, th I think there still has to be evidence that, that makes it foreseeable that whatever harm occurred uh, w was probable, um, was probable. I, I don't think it forecloses the possibility that there may be some circumstances and cases where there could be liability, but I don't believe this case rises to that. In this specific case, Clark, Clark did these actions outside the context of her employment. I know the plaintiff brings uh, places a lot of emphasis on her return to the home, but by the time Ms. Ms. Clark was returned to the home, she already knew the keys. She, if, you, if, you, learned... if, you, if you if you read this instruction very literally, when it says people, both the employee and the plaintiff were in a place where they had the right to be, the, apparently the uh, employee was outside and no indication that the employee was where the employee was not entitled to be and the plaintiff was in the uh in the house where they had the right to be but i'm just i'm having trouble seeing why this is that criteria is particularly relevant to a a, a negligent retention supervision hiring type claim i know it's in the case law but i'm just trying you know it, we've got to figure out going forward what the uh what we should what the standard ought to be and i'm, I'm just seeking enlightenment on why this ought to be the standard since it was part of the instruction that y'all requested. 
Yes, Your Honor. And, and the, the reason for that is, you know, Ms. Ms. Clark, it's not just the Ms. Clark's involvement. It's the reason that should be the standard is because otherwise it broadens the liability on the potential employer too much. I mean, if you, if you like little, if you have a delivery driver that's out there delivering packages, uh, say it's Amazon, for example, and they go to somebody else's home, they don't have a right to be at that particular location. They have a right to be at the, at the, for the purpose of delivering the package where, where the intended destination is. In this situation, Ms. Clark, regardless of whether she had worked that day in the home or not, would not have been had the right to be in the Keith's home at the time. Um, you know, at the time this act was committed, because no health pro employee was scheduled to be working then, and the the hours were never uh, this late at night for for the employee. So I think that speaks. I hope that speaks to the concern, and I, I think it addresses the concern that in order for liability to be imposed. There has to be some connection and the the employee has to have some kind of right to be where they are, whether that be at the actual actual place of employment or whether it be at a, a place that by nature of the relationship and the services being performed, they have a right to be. But when you when you're talking about people coming into your home, be it a home health care aide or a plumber or electrician, they only have a right to be there during the performance of their duties, not when they're outside the shift. I have a it's, it's, Justice Earls, if I could follow up just a minute with Justice Irvin's question. Um, so if an employee learns of the way to access a home, uh, knowing that there are vulnerable people within that home, in this case, a hidden key, and they share that information, knowing that those individuals are going to break into the, the house, what is the uh, location of the employee? Uh, how is that even relevant to whether uh, uh, the employee orchestrated the home invasion? Thank you for that question, Justice Newby. I think it goes back to the overarching question of whether it was foreseeable to the employer that the employee would have shared that information to begin with or, or conspired to, to commit the, the tortious act. Let me let me jump in just a second because she found out, as you indicated, where the key was, and this goes back to negligent hiring and retention, given all the circumstances here, that there was at least this colorable allegation that she had stolen and that she uh um had outstanding uh, debts that uh, weren't being met. I mean, how is that enough? How is that not enough, at least to get to the jury on that question? Be, and I believe, uh, thank you, Justice Newby. I believe that that question kind of goes to the point the dissent made about the about the intel, if I'm understanding it correctly. And in this particular case, it goes back to the foreseeability because there was no intel, there's no record, nothing in the record that the intel she learned or could have learned was material to the outcome of this case. But and the, the reason for that- Wait one second, the, the hidden key, knowledge of the hidden key uh, wasn't germane to how these guys broke into the house? 
Your Honor, with regard to the key specifically, the, one of the the record reflects that one of the assailants also possessed a pry bar and a mallet, suggesting that knowledge of the key would not have made a difference. Uh, or and the, there's also no evidence in the record that suggests that entering plaintiff's home in any other fashion would have caused some kind of warning or neighborhood disturbance, as the dissent suggested. Uh, played a played a role in this intel. In fact, the record actually showed that the 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 assailants came in yelling and screaming uh, when they came into the back door. So so in this case, knowledge of the key doesn't make a difference in the outcome of it because the assailants were going to enter the house regardless. Um, they had a mallet and pry bar to to gain entry. Thank you, counsel. I believe I interrupted Justice Earls. So Justice Earls, thank you. Yes, thank you. I, I was going in a different direction. So, um, thank you for this opportunity. I, I, I wanted to somewhat go back to, I think, a more fundamental question where you started um, saying that the plaintiffs are trying to hold this employer liable for the employee's bad acts. But I heard the plaintiffs to be saying it's the employer's bad acts. It's the employer's negligence. Um, and then, you know, there's a whole list of, of ways in which the employer um, didn't didn't serve these customers well, but, but in particular, placing this employee back in the home after promising that they wouldn't, and after having information from this couple that that things had been stolen from them. So I hear their complaint about the employer's actions. Um, th that that that's what they are saying is the negligence that makes the employer liable here. Sure, and thank you for that question, Justice Earls. Uh, by the time Dietrich Clark was driving Mrs. Keith without a license, with, with Mrs. Keith's, Keith's knowledge and permission, by the time she made the Facebook posts, by the time the money went missing from home, and by the time she was removed and sent back to the home, she already knew the Keiths at that point. She, she knew their home and its contents. She knew where the key was and that there's, she, there's no evidence that anything changed between the time she was removed and this happened in regard to the circumstances in the house. Clark already knew the Keith's children, what they drove and how often they visited. And she already knew no one from Health Pro would be there because the Keith's never had anyone there late that night. Even if she had been fired or other disciplined for driving for um, the Facebook posts, there's no evidence that the events of September 29th, 2016 would not have happened. And nothing in the record suggests that returning her by the home, a decision that goes through the supervision and retention of an employee, made the events more likely or were a proximate cause. In fact, during the time she was removed, she was serving other clients with no complaints. And once she was returned to the Keith's home two to three weeks before this incident happened, the Keith's themselves had no complaints about Ms. Clark's, uh, Ms. Clark's performance in her home and did not object to her return to the home. So the central issue, more to, to your question, the central issue in the case, in our opinion, does not center on what transpired during the course of Clark's uh, employment. The central issue is whether Clark should have been hired in the first place. Well, but and it, the, sounds, it, and it, it sounds to me like you are addressing the proximate cause question, and I, I'm um, sort of going back to the issue of of whether or not this um, appropriately is a negligence case, and if and it seems to me fundamental to that to first identify who's neg what are the acts of neg negligence that the plaintiff is alleging. Um, they have the, the um, basis of a claim for, and and so, and it does seem to me to relate to the um, jury instruction question, and 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 so what I want to ask you about there is why the 
jury instruction that the defendants proposed, which which um, requires says the plaintiffs must prove. And now I'm looking at page 57 of the record. The plaintiffs must prove by greater weight of the evidence four things that the defendant owed the plaintiff a legal duty of care that Dietra Clark was incompetent and that prior to the injury to plaintiff, the defendant had actual or constructive knowledge of this incompetence. It seems to me that that those elements don't fit the proof here because what the she, Deidre Clark may have been a really excellent home hair. She might have been providing great care. The negligence was that the company didn't investigate when there was a, um, a possibility that she had stolen from this couple and that they put her back in the home. Um, so, so that's, I agree. I mean, I understand you say those, those acts of negligence may, didn't cause the harm, but, but if those are the acts of negligence, how does this, um, jury instruction actually fit the proof in this case. Thank you. And I'm sorry if I misunderstood your earlier question, Justice Earls, but the, the specific acts that the that those contentions are based on are, are focused on the supervision and retention of, of an employee. And, and that that falls within the negligent hiring rubric. And in order to advance those claims, the, the case law is very clear that they have to show four specific elements on the part of the employer to establish liability. The ordinary negligence instruction is, does not go into those elements. It does not instruct the jury on those elements. So th that, that is why it was error is because the negligent, this is a negligent hiring tort, regardless of how the plaintiff has attempted to classify it. And the negligent hiring instruction specifically addresses the, the elements and what is required for the plaintiff to be successful on those claims. Not let me let me follow up on Justice Earls's question. How is the um, issue of whether um, the employer was negligent in placing this aid back in their home after they told them they would not related to um, hiring? Or they were negligent or not in hiring when they're complaining that they said they wouldn't put the, her back in their home and then they did. The the tort itself is not focused solely on a hiring context. It also contemplates supervision, negligent supervision, and retention of an employee, and that that is what the decision to return her to the home does. When when an employer makes a decision on where to send somebody, that is a supervision. That falls under supervision of the employee and, and where they're going to be working. And when they made the decision the, to retain the Clark, focusing, I hear the plaintiffs focusing on what the employer did and decisions that the employer made with regard to following through on a promise they had made to the plaintiffs or not. Isn't that separate from what they hire or retain an employee to do? Whether they follow through on what they tell their customers they're going to do? No, Your Honor, because those decisions and those promises again involve the supervision and retention of a particular employee in, in the plaintiff's home. Um, it, it's not just we we pro it's not just a, a general promise. It, it specifically regarded the supervision and retention of Clark in the plaintiff's home as a personal care aide. So well, it would still fall under the negative. If an employer like this um, only acts by placing people in other people's homes. To, to provide care, um, what route would you ever have for finding them liable for um, any kind of decisions that they made that would affect what would happen in those homes? If the if 
owners of the company themselves never actually provided the care, but always acted through their employees as agents. Liability would attach if the plaintiff has sufficient evidence to show the, the to show and prove the, the necessary elements of, of negligent supervision, hiring and retention. Um, that, that, that is, those are the circumstances when a company like this can be held liable and it is the same for a personal care aid or an in home nurse as it would be for a plumber or an electrician or any other contractor that goes into somebody's home as part of their employment. The, the well, decision aside from, aside from making decisions to hire or retain employees, isn't this company like any other held to a standard of reasonable care with regard to all of their interactions with their customers as well as the public? Yes, everybody's held to a standard of reasonable care, but the specific tortious conduct, alleged tortious conduct in this case, again, goes to their decisions in, in supervising in how they supervise Clark and how they retained her as an employee. Uh, it's not, not a general promise or general interaction. It's very specific in regards to her being retained as a personal care aide in the plaintiff's home and the decisions on how they, they supervise her and, and where they sent her um, well, as a I'm personal care saying, aide. I'm not saying in the complaint that it's alleged to be specifically only um, negligence in hiring or retaining. It's more negligence in how they interacted with them as customers more broadly. Is, is there some place in the complaint where it limits the allegations to only retention and hiring? No, your honor, and I, I may be misunderstanding your question and I apologize if I am, but the, the specific, my understanding of their arguments is the specific promises that they made that they claim were broken were the promises to investigate the missing money fully and to, and to not return Clark to the home. Um, and and that those those promises go very specifically to their supervision of Clark as an employee and their retention of Clark as a, as an employee. Um, so it's not it's not just the promise of you know we're going to provide you quality services. The specific promises plaintiffs complained of in this case deal with the supervision and retention of Clark. But are, so are you saying that the employer cannot be held? Uh, responsible for their decisions in and how they interact with their customer in regard to living up to their promises or not. I, that you can only look at it through the lens of hiring or retaining particular employees. Is that what that's what I'm understanding you to say? It, no, Your Honor. In this case, I, I'm not saying in all cases that there aren't cases out there that that they may be held liable due to a broken promise. However, what I am saying is in this specific case, the promise does not bring it out of the negligent hiring rubric and, and that particular tort. The plaintiff's, my understanding of the plaintiff's argument is that those promises bring this into an ordinary negligence realm. And that is not the case because those promises, again, concern the negligent supervision and retention of an employee. So I'm not saying that no employer who breaks a promise to a customer, no company that breaks a promise to a customer can't be can't ever be held liable. What I'm saying in this particular case under these facts, the promises that they complain of that were broken still make it fall under the negligent retention and supervision rubric of that tort and not just an ordinary negligence principle. Okay, I, under, I understand your um, point. 
Thank you. Well, Mr. Rockrock, while we while let me ask you one pretty specific question going back to the instruction request. Where in Little or anywhere else in this court's jurisprudence, and I'm including Little in that because we affirmed it per curiam, where is it required that a jury find the three components that are set out in the instruction that you requested? Can you point me to anything in Little that makes those factors mandatory uh, components of the claim? I, I cannot point to you to any specific case that make those factors mandatory, but I think those factors, Little makes clear those factors should be considered. In, but, in but, but the, the, instruction, the instruction that you requested, which is the pattern, and I mean, I understand we use the patterns all the time, but the instruction says this means the plaintiff must prove that that, that they were in places where they had a right to be, that the plaintiff encountered the employee as a direct result of his employment, the defendant must reasonably expected to receive some benefit. The instruction that you requested, at least as I read it, requires in order for there to be a finding of liability that each of those three things be found. Where is there anything in our case law that supports an instruction of that nature? Not an instruction that you've got to consider these things, but it's an instruction that you've got to find them. I, and, uh, thank you for that question, Your Honor. And, and again, I don't know if I can point you to a specific case that this court has decided on it. And all I can point you to is little, and those are factors that should be should be considered. I, I think in this situation, whether we do you see a difference between an instruction that requires a jury to find all three of those things? as a precondition of liability as compared to an instruction that says in reaching this determination as to whether a duty exists, you got to consider these three things. I do see a difference, Your Honor, but in this in this particular case, I don't know if it if it changes the results or, or the error, because whether we, we say must or may, those factors weren't even given to the jury at all. All they were given was you have to use reasonable care under the ordinary negligence rubric, and that is that is not what we but contend the, the law law is. The reason I ask the question is your 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 instructional issue comes from your contention, at least as I understand it, that the trial court erred by failing to give the instruction that you requested. The instruction that you requested, as I understand it, requires the jury as a precondition of liability to find all three of those things. If the jury should not be required to find all three of those things, how is the instruction that you requested an accurate statement of North Carolina law arising on the evidence? Because of the little case, Your Honor, whether they may or must, those those factors should still be considered by a jury, and, and they weren't even given the factors. But your, um, but your request, what I mean, I hate to, I don't want to quibble, but your request was for an instruction that required a finding of all three of those factors, not a request that the jury be instructed, instructed to consider those factors, right? That, that is correct, Your Honor. We requested the pattern jury instruction. Um, and, and again, what, what I would add to that is, is, you know, regardless of whether the pattern was given or the, the jury was instructed may, the factors were not even given to the jury uh, to, to consider at all. All they were given was ordinary negligence in the context of a negligent hiring claim, which was not a correct statement of law to give to the jury um, because of the specific elements that the plaintiff has to prove on a negligent hiring claim. 
and, and just very briefly going back to proximate cause, I'll, I'll touch again on on what the plaintiffs point to as as the main negligent alleged negligent act on the on the part of Health Pro. Uh, again, by the time she, there's no evidence in the record that Ms. Clark gained any additional intel that she did not already possess at the time at, at the time she was hired and initially placed in the home almost a year beforehand. Um, it, it, and there's no evidence that placing her in the home made it more likely or more foreseeable to Health Pro. In, in fact, what we have in this case is uh, evidence that the key was in the same place it had been. Um, Health Pro had, had never had AIDS in the house that late at night. Miss um, Clark already knew the keys. She already knew their children and how often they visited. So returning to her. To, to the home did not make it more foreseeable and was not a proximate cause of the alleged injury because even if they had fired her and never returned her to home, this, this event could have still happened. What, what the central issue, as I mentioned before, is whether they should have hired her in the first place. And what the evidence shows in, in that particular instance is that Ms. Clark uh, presented to Health Pro on referral of somebody the CEO knew personally. She had good references. She gave a good interview. Her criminal history was not something that disqualified her from employment under uh, Health Pro's own policies, and more importantly, under state law in Chapter 131E. Um, and then she she was hired and and performed her job satisfactorily until this incident happened. So it I understand plaintiff's argument about the Facebook um, and and the driving. But there's no no law that requires a, an employer to supervise a, a employees or prospective employees social media postings. The postings were memes and not connected to the Keiths or her employment to begin with. Um, and then, so we, we contend this case is more analogous to other cases that our courts have held that there was insufficient evidence to support a jury finding and and upheld summary judgment. Those cases being. Uh, Medlin versus Bass, which this court uh, decided and is analogous to the facts of this case. Morical versus. Thank, thank you, counsel. I'm afraid your time has expired. Thank you. Right. Thank you. Uh, rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Uh, I want to raise two points on rebuttal. The first, I hope, will be responsive both to Justice Earls and Justice Hudson's questions, as well as your question, Mr. Chief Justice, along with Justice Berenger concerning the guardrails. Uh, it's, it's kind of expansive. And then I, I want to touch also on the foreseeability element. Um, Justice Searles and Justice Hudson, you both pointed out uh, the specific act of negligence, and we contend that it is the promise. It's the promise that was made to Fred Keith that Dietrich Clark would not be placed back in his parents' home. And so we think that is what takes this outside of the rubric of negligent hiring retention or supervision. Uh, it's not just a case where an individual is uh, put out, held out to the public. This is the case where an individual is held out to a very specific, identifiable potential victim and a foreseeable harm results. And so that makes this more like negligence than negligent hiring. Uh, I commend the court to kind of the historical development of the negligent hiring tort to, to support that. Negligent hiring, if we if you read the little case closely, it's it discusses this court's case uh, like Page against Sloan and Woodson against Rowland. Those are cases about just incompetence writ large, kind of this duty owed to everybody 
that just exist irrespective of personal relationships, irrespective of specific facts. That's much in the same way that I, as a homeowner, can't make my home unreasonably dangerous to visitors. The difference here is there is a specific promise. There's a promise to never return Clark to the home that's made directly to the keys. That takes this and may, that takes what might be a negligent hiring claim and makes it into something else. I'd also point out, you know, we cite the Braswell case in our new brief, and I think we cite it for a different point, but in, in reading it, one thing that struck out to me is we also have created an exception to the public duty doctrine um, and, and have concluded that if a police officer makes a specific promise of protection, that specific promise gives rise to a duty, not some amorphous duty that exists in the ether, but instead a duty because of a promise to a specific and identifiable person. That's exactly what we have in this case. Concerning your question, uh, your questions, Mr. Chief Justice and Justice Berenger, about guardrails, I, I think it does start with the promise, the promise that was made to Fred Keith that she'd never return. But it's it's about more than that. This isn't a case about making the making. I'm sorry, Justice Servant, do you have a question? This isn't a case about making an an employer liable to the public at large. So the jury can consider a number of different factors. What What's the nature of the promise that was made? And, and let me take a step back and say, I think when we're talking about these guardrails, this isn't necessarily exclusive to a conception of this tort as negligence. This is, you know, if you wanna call it negligent supervision, if you wanna call it negligent hiring, if you wanna call it ordinary negligence, which is what we call it, I think these guardrails still exist. Uh, and and that is, there's a pre-existing relationship. There's a specific promise and a specific understanding. There is a long-standing relationship of a of a unique kind. And I commend the court to the to the amicus brief filed by the elder law attorneys on that point about the specific needs that individuals in the Keith's position have. So there are a number of factors out there that a jury could consider or that a court could consider on a motion for summary judgment or on some other appropriate motion uh, to limit employer liability. Again, we are not asking the court to make every employer the insurer of safety. You know, we are instead asking the court to hold responsible an employer who makes an, a promise to an identifiable group and then violates that promise that results in harm. Mr. Mr. Edwards, I think I do have a question now based on something you just said. Uh, I had a discussion with Mr. Rothrock about the uh, first part of the proposed instruction that the uh, defendant requested. I had understood your colleague to say that his concern about treating this as a negligent retention supervision or hiring case mostly had to do with the way that the uh, uh, little case was reflected in the uh, uh, instructions. If if we were to look at that instruction for greater to, to see if to see if it was consistent with little, uh, would that alleviate some of your concern about cl classifying this claim as a, a negligent supervision, retention or hiring case? 
I believe it would, Your Honor. I'd note again that the defendant did not introduce uh, a proposed alternative instruction. And so I think that the court could analyze the jury instruction, perhaps clarify the jury instruction. And I think that the overwhelming weight of evidence, uh, regardless of classification based on uh, I think the overwhelming weight of the evidence, regardless of how you classify the claim, demonstrates that this is a harm that was foreseeable and did arise out of Ms. Clark's employment. Um, so I, I think that would alleviate some of my concerns. Turning very briefly to uh, discuss the foreseeability issue, you know, Mr. my colleague on the other side has suggested that there was no change uh, and that putting Clark back in the home was not a, I guess this is a proximate cause issue, that putting Clark back in the home did not cause the harm. I commend the court to page 184, 185, and 186 of the transcript. Uh, Fred Keith discusses a change in schedule. I don't think Help Pro has ever made an argument that says, well, there there was no change in, I, Mr. Chief Justice, I see my time's expired. Yes, thank we you, counsel. Thank you, we understand. Thank you to all counsel. And before I ask the Madam Clerk to gavel us out, I would note that this appears to be our clerk's uh, last public act uh, for that, um, uh, for her service. Uh, I know I speak on behalf of all my fellow justices for her service. We are extremely grateful. Um, our clerk came to the court expecting us as part of our 200th anniversary to travel. Uh, we had lots of travel scheduled. Our first interruption was with Hurricane Florence uh, as we were scheduled to head down east and we had to make some last minute uh, cancellations in light of all the uh, devastation that had occurred there. Uh, I will note that she successfully uh, uh, helped us with the actual 200th anniversary celebration itself and we also uh, resumed our travel. Uh, thinking that we would be able to catch up on our desired itinerary only to be confronted in February of 2020 with COVID. And um, so she has uh, seen us through uh, multiple foreseeable challenges. Uh, for that, we are grateful. Uh, while uh, she has decided to pursue another opportunity and I understand from a professional standpoint that it's an excellent opportunity. Uh, I just wanted to express uh, to Funderburg uh, our appreciation for her service, and uh, we all wish her well in her new endeavor. Uh, with that being said, Madam Clerk, if you would gavel uh, 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 us in adjournment. Thank you, Chief Chief Justice. It's it's been an honor, um, and I've truly enjoyed. Uh, serving the court and getting to know, um, getting to know the members of the court. It has absolutely been been an honor and a privilege. And with that, oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess until the next calling of the calendar. God save the state and this honorable court.